It's time now for the Lamb McElwain Legal Show. Each show, heard every other Thursday at 1230, will feature different lawyers and their guests from the law firm of Lamb McElwain. Good afternoon. This is George Zambano and Jim Sargent. We're attorneys uh, at Lamb McElwain in Westchester, Pennsylvania. George, that was a pretty good intro to our show going out of my head over you. That's what we see in mediation, it seems to me. People uh, dream of each other day and night. Um, we're here this afternoon to talk about mediation. Uh, first, let's get some things straight. Mediation is voluntary. Uh, mediation occurs by agreement of the parties to a dispute or a lawsuit. Mediation is confidential, and it provides the parties with a private way to resolve disputes. Mediation is also without prejudice. There can't be any admissions by any party in the mediation. There can't be any testimony thereafter about what happened in the mediation. Mediation is a collaborative process as opposed to an adversarial process, such as litigation or arbitration. The um what often happens in a mediation is the parties have been in litigation or they've had a long-standing dispute, but they've realized that there's a pro- possible way to resolve the matter through mediation, and they get together with an experienced mediator to try to resolve the case. To the point of Jim's comment about confidentiality, if the mediation does not result in a resolution or settlement of the case, nobody can be compelled to testify if the case ends up going to court as to what occurred during the mediation, either the mediator, the parties, or their lawyers. So the parties, if they say something in the mediation, aren't going to be bound to that uh, after the mediation. If you make an offer, for example, that's for settlement purposes, and that gets erased if the parties can't come to an agreement and uh, have to go on to trial or arbitration. The importance of that, that's this uh, confidentiality clause, is, is what Jim just alluded to. In a mediation process, people that are involved here, you want to be open. You want people to be able to express their views, not only in an adversarial or argumentative way, but in a concessionary way, like I'd be willing to do this or I'd be willing to do that. But they might not otherwise be willing to say in a hearing. Um, And therefore, uh, that's why the rules of confidentiality we're just talking about exist. And if there's no agreement... At the end of the mediation, you go back to where you were at square one. You're either going to court, you're going to arbitration, um, or you you have to uh, proceed with trial. So, George, what what do you think are the the keys to a successful mediation? Here, there are two primary keys. Most importantly, assuming it's a two-party dispute, to make it simple, you need parties that are willing to act in good faith in the mediation process and have a a good faith desire to be willing to compromise and not necessarily give up their position, but be willing to be open to compromising that position, to act in good faith, to try to reach a resolution. And then just as importantly, besides parties willing to do what I just said, you need a good mediator that's experienced in these kinds of things. Um, What makes a good mediator is... um, is often mediation is hard work, and you need somebody in the mediator's role who can roll up their sleeves and really get fully immersed in the two sides of the dispute. It's, it's important.
for a mediator understand the positions of the two sides. Oftentimes, if not always, good mediators have long years of experience with lawsuits and negotiations. Uh, and almost all good mediators have had a fair degree of formal mediation training, uh, usually 30, 40 hours or more of schooling and training in techniques of mediation. Those are important aspects. Good mediators know the dispute and issue belongs to the parties. The mediator is not the judge. The case doesn't belong to the lawyers. The mediator or the judge, it belongs to the parties. So, George, what does the mediator do for the parties? I mean, how does the mediator um, help the parties to move towards a resolution? Good mediators uh, provide each side of the dispute with critical perspectives that the mediator can observe from an objective perspective, not uh, not uh, a partiality position. Uh, position. We we don't mediators don't dictate the outcome. Uh, a mediator has no authority to force the parties to accept any suggestions or to make decisions. But a mediator is often able to point out, contrary to the lawyers or the parties in the case who are often falling in love, if I can use that word, with their own side and are deeply entrenched in their position. The mediators can point out to those uh, adversaries in a, in a perspective that's somewhat objective and help them understand that their, their case, the strength of their case may not be as strong as they perceive, that there may be viewpoints and positions of the other side that have substantial merit. I want to circle back uh, to the distinction between a mediator and an arbitrator, because sometimes that those two concepts get confused, and obviously an arbitrator versus a trial judge or a jury. Can you make that uh, distinction? Yeah. The, uh, the mediator's job is to work with the parties to allow them, the parties themselves, with the assistance of their lawyers usually, to come to a settlement that they mutually agree upon. The mediator does not impose a decision or a resolution. Sometimes uh, parties will independently ask for some advice or what does the mediator think about a position, um, but the decision as to what, how the case is resolved is completely up to the parties. On the other side, to Jim's question about arbitrators, arbitrators are there to make a decision. They're very much like a judge or a non-jury trial. They're going to hear the case, whether it's formally with evidence or whether it's summarized on paper, and then they're going to make a ruling, just like a judge would do. They're going to pick sides, they're going to make a decision, and they're going to impose a resolution on the parties, not determined by the parties, but determined by the arbitrators. So all of this is a matter of agreement between the parties at the outset. Generally speaking, um, you don't have an arbitrator, or often it's three arbitrators, unless the parties have entered into an agreement, a contract, a lease some other form of agreement in which there is a specific clause that say, says, if there is a dispute, we're going to go to arbitration. And there's a whole um, panoply, there's a whole structure for arbitration rules. For example, the American Arbitration Association has, it's like a court, it has all of these rules of procedure. And when the parties agree to that, the court's will enforce those provisions and force the parties to go to an arbitration. It's not a lot different than a court case, a case in trial, but as George has said, the arbitrator is empowered by the parties 
reach a decision, and there isn't any right to appeal that decision. The parties are bound by it because they agreed to that when they entered into the contract. Mediators operate differently. The mediator, generally speaking, won't tell you what the result should be. He'll just give you nudges in the direction of what is likely to be the middle ground. And the two parties, as George says, have to come to that middle ground in order for there to be a resolution. But the mediator has no power to force the parties to accept mediation. Interestingly, mediation often occurs even if there isn't a prior agreement that the parties are going to mediate. Often they'll go into court, courts now, particularly federal courts, but now in the Court of Common Pleas, Chester County, urges the parties to go to mediation to see if they can resolve their disputes. The chief judge in Chester County just entered a new rule in which he is going to compel parties to go to mediation before they go to trial. The important distinction that Jim has made is that regardless of how you end up in mediation, you hope that you'll get the case resolved. And we can talk about some of the benefits in a minute. But if it doesn't resolve, you have lost nothing other than the time and effort to, um, in good faith, try to get it resolved through mediation. If the mediation does not reach a resolution, the parties are back to square one, if you would, or where they started down the mediation road. They'll either then be heading to a trial with a judge and or jury or arbitration if the, uh, if the paperwork calls for arbitration, as, as Jim explained. So those are the main differences between mediation and arbitration. And, you, and to George's point, you don't lose anything by trying to resolve the dispute through mediation. And, and sometimes going through the process of mediating helps the parties to focus on what really are the issues in the case. The other thing that motivates, excuse me, Jim, the other thing that motivates parties to go to mediation is frankly economics. It is, as we all know, especially lawyers or those of you out there in our audience that have been involved in litigation or trials, it's expensive. Uh, lawyers are expensive. Costs and fees of presenting cases and putting on evidence is very expensive. Expert witnesses are expensive. Mediation is a lot more informal, and there isn't the required time and effort uh, that you would have in, 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 in litigating or trying a case. So there's a great opportunity for parties uh, to reach a resolution of the case and, and save a substantial, and I mean substantial, amount of fees and costs versus litigation. I agree with that. However, um, everyone should understand that they will have to split the cost of media, the mediator, the mediation, mediator's time, um, when they go to mediation. So typically what happens is the mediator will give a flat fee for conducting a day's worth of mediation and an hourly rate. And uh, then the parties agree that they're going to split the retainer fee or the engagement fee, and they will split any additional hours that the mediator spends on the, on the case. So it's not without expense, but it does save uh, days and days of trial often, which can be incredibly expensive. Now, let's talk about how the mediation works. Um, before the parties actually, first of all, obviously, the parties have to agree to mediation. That's step one. 
Second step is they have to agree to the mediator. And typically what happens is lawyers tell their clients, here are some mediators who we recommend, and they discuss with the clients the pros and cons of the mediators. There are mediation services in Philadelphia County. Um, ADR Options, JAMS runs another one. I can tell you that they are exceedingly expensive. Local mediators um, are available, and they charge a fraction of what is charged in Philadelphia County and can be just as competent and just as capable of bringing parties to a resolution. There are also, to that point, um, to Jim's point about local mediators, the lawyers in the region know most of the good mediators uh, or have reached opinions as to who they feel are good mediators. And a good mediator from a lawyer's perspective is not someone who they think is going to favor their client per se, because you don't know that but someone who they know from experience has a good sense of judgment, has a good understanding of legal issues, is even-tempered, has a good way with people in order to persuade or, or uh, allow the parties to reach an agreement. So not only do the lawyers that are involved in various regions, including this area of Pennsylvania, know a number of those mediators, the courts in various counties have set up mediation panels of experienced mediators, often requiring those mediators to have formal training. And in some areas of the law, uh, the courts push the parties to mediation and, as Jim alluded to earlier, can require in certain cases. For example, uh, in the Orphan's Court, which will hear cases involving disputes over wills or will contests or uh, estate matters, there is a mandatory requirement that the parties seriously consider mediation and the lawyer, pardon me, the judges, have the authority to order the parties to go down the road to mediation. And that's been longstanding in the Chester County Orphans Court. More recently, as Jim alluded to, uh, the president judge, in light of the virus situation that we're all going in, which has obviously hampered in-court time for lots of procedures, has have uh, given the judges the authority in the, in the civil section and the other areas of the law to order the parties to go to mediation. It doesn't mean the, mediated, the mediation they're ordered to go to will result in a settlement, but they have to go down that road and try it, because, uh, try the mediation. And as I said, done in good faith, nine times out of ten, they should be able to reach a resolution with the assistance of a, of a good, experienced mediator. Circling back to what George said a moment ago, uh, a good mediator is not going to be biased. I mean, he may know the attorneys on either side. He may know only one side of the controversy, but a good mediator knows that he's never going to be asked to be a mediator again if word gets around that he's partial. So mediators are, in a sense, like uh, judges. They all, to my experience, have high standards in terms of professionality. And uh, also, circling back to what uh, George said a moment ago, all attorneys and all clients, if they're engaged in litigation, tend to fall in love with their positions. They get into the trenches. They lose perspective. It's very useful to have somebody who's a trained professional come in from 20,000 feet and say, wait, 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 wait. Did you consider this? Did you consider that? Did you consider how the judge is going to view your position or the jury? So that's a very useful 
um, perspective, and that's what makes mediation work. Now, let's just talk about how mediation works, just the nuts and bolts. Um, typically, with in-person mediation, the old style before COVID-19, um, the parties having agreed to mediation, having agreed to select a mediator, will have contact with the mediator. A lot of mediators will initiate the contact early on by speaking to the attorneys, either in a conference call with both attorneys present or uh, separately with permission of the parties to get the perspective from each side as to what the major issues are that separate the two sides. That's a valuable insight. Then typically the mediator will have a series of um, letters or rules that they will send out, that the mediator will send out to the parties, asking the parties to do things in advance and telling the parties what to expect. Typically, the mediator will tell them the actual procedures, will map out the procedures that will occur when the mediation starts, how he will handle uh, both sides, and he will request, typically he or she will request, a mediation statement up front and any relevant pleadings or um, other documents that could help the mediator understand the controversy. And that will be sent out um, in advance of the mediation. We thought uh, it might be useful today as as we explain the mediation process um, in light of the COVID-19 situation, which has forced all of us and all of you, I'm sure, to and telephone conferences and video conferences. I think uh, obviously the most well-known uh, platform we all hear about now is Zoom conferences and on the computer. With respect, we thought we'd contrast a little bit how we're doing mediations now in that uh, environment versus the live uh, mediation. Jim just took you through the first couple of steps. When in a, in a virtual mediation, those first couple of steps are not too different, except that the person, the meetings that the mediator might have initially or conferences with the lawyers in advance of the actual mediation process will not be done in person. They will be done either by telephone or, or just as often by a Zoom or Cisco meeting or other type of electronic platform where we can see each other. The lawyer can see the lawyer on the other side. Sometimes the mediator will have pre-mediation meetings with both sides privately, even sometimes with their experts, review their reports, et cetera. And that can all be done, of course, easily in a Zoom context. But that's pretty easy when you're just talking to one side. We'll explain how that works uh, when we get to the actual mediation. But the submission of papers that Jim talked about in advance of the mediation, that will be pretty much the same, of course. And with the old school pre-COVID-19 mediation, typically what happens is the mediator gets the parties, both sides, into one room, a conference room, and goes over the controversy. Sometimes that's a formal presentation by either side. Sometimes it's a very brief discussion, depending on um, the circumstances. And the mediator and the two attorneys really work as a team. Sometimes the attorneys will say to the mediator, I think it will really help to have both sides address each other. Sometimes they'll say, we've got to keep these two sides apart. 
as, as uh, quickly as possible. And then the uh, mediator divides up the parties, sticks one side in one conference room, one side in another conference room, and plays shuttle diplomacy, going back and forth, discussing specific points in controversy, seeing what movement there can be on each of those points, gradually trying to bring both sides closer and closer together. And in the virtual world, to have those separate meetings or separate meeting rooms, we actually can easily do that in a Zoom or Cisco meeting type platform. So if you've been on those to talk to your family or otherwise have had meetings on Zoom, you you, see, you know, say you had five people, they're all in, you know, on the screen at the same time. Well, there's the technology exists for the mediator to take, say there are five people involved, to take two or three of them and put them in a separate virtual room on the computer and on the, on the video screen. So those two three, or three people may be any place in the country or sometimes even overseas, but they're separately um, segregated, both audio and visual-wise, uh, I'll use Zoom, in the Zoom context. The mediator then, virtually or electronically by way of audio and video, goes between the virtual room with two or three people in it, talking to them, as Jim says, to point out uh, the issues, to discuss where they might be on settlement, to discuss options, to dis explore strategies, to get the both parties to agree, and then remove himself from that room and go virtually to the other room. One of the big advantages, I said about costs, we often have in large cases in a mediation where there are multiple parties and multiple experts, there are oftentimes multiple lawyers, depending upon the size of the case and complexity. Those lawyers can be in different parts of the country. Instead of traveling, say, to Philadelphia or Westchester to be in the mediation room, they can be in their office in New York or Chicago or wherever and connect in. And there's a whole uh, lot of cost savings there because the lawyers or the experts or the witnesses that might otherwise come to a live mediation will be able to do so electronically and save a tremendous amount of uh, travel fees, et cetera. One of the great things about mediation is that the lawyers and the mediator can develop their own procedures given the particular nature of the dispute involved. I have been locked into a federal courtroom by a mediator, um, a magistrate judge with nine lawyers and told we weren't going to have anything uh, other than water for the next 12 hours uh, unless we settled the case. And I have I've done a formal presentation in um, the uh, ceremonial courtroom in the old courthouse in Westchester, which was like an opening or two openings to a jury, uh, which took half a day, and then uh, retired uh, to our offices and spent the next uh, 16 hours until the wee hours of the morning mediating a, a major construction dispute. So that sort of thing happens all the time. And, the, and it's, it's whatever the parties are willing to sustain and whatever the mediator and the attorneys uh, are willing to come up with. Oftentimes, uh, again, in a large case or a complex case, uh, mediation can go beyond one day. Uh, we can reconvene virtually or in person, depending upon the setting. Nowadays, pretty much only virtually. But we can reconvene the next day or the next week, or sometimes there's additional information that has to be done and achieved by the parties or by one party or the other, and we, we reconvene. The, the art, if I can use, the art of mediating, 
uh, is empowering and encouraging the parties to um, to focus on the closeness of where they are in settlement, even though they sometimes don't realize it, and to help the parties avoid outbreaks of hostility, of backsliding, or the parties reaching what, what a mediator hates most, which is an impasse, which is where the parties lock themselves in a position and refuse to budge. There are, there are various techniques used by mediators, uh, but essentially it takes patience and encouragement uh, of the parties by the mediator, uh, and as I said, patience to get the parties to, to keep moving and not reach an impasse so that ultimately they can get the case settled on terms they mutually agree upon. The important thing about mediation is it's not bound by the rules and the procedures of a courtroom. It doesn't turn on how good a witness presents in a case. Uh, all of those things are variables which can change. People can go into a courtroom and can have a really uh, great concept of the case and get a ruling from the judge that totally uh, throws them into a tailspin. Or they can have this key witness who, as we say, goes into the tank, doesn't deliver credible testimony in the manner that was anticipated. And if it's a trial, whether it be jury or judge, I mean, Jim and I can both agree, and I'm sure every lawyer that, that tries cases will agree that, especially when you're in front of a jury, cases are a crapshoot no matter how sure you think your case is clear as a bell and it has to go this way in terms of their decision. It is oftentimes, if you'll pardon my expression, a crapshoot. So that's, I'm not sure I can pardon that expression, but <laughs> well, that is a nice segue to the next topic, which is why go to mediation? and and. Uh, uh, there is one key reason to go to mediation, and that is that when you go into the courtroom, you lose control. You lose control of the outcome of the case. And you may have a very good idea and understanding and concept of how the outcome should come out of the courtroom, but the judge can surprise you, the jury can surprise you, and probably will. Um, I've always said to clients, you know, when you go into a courtroom, generally speaking, two people go in and only one emerges satisfied with the outcome. And in most cases, both parties are somewhat dissatisfied with the outcome. So the major reason to go to mediation is to keep control over the outcome. And even if you can't reach a result in the first uh, series of deliberations and mediation, um, it's good to keep trying because you whittle away, and the results in mediation often are practical. They're not necessarily the legal result. They're not necessarily the result that you would get if a key witness testifies absolutely according to expectation, but they're practical. They save money. They allow you to return to your lives without a lot of uh, aggregation. Ag aggravation. To Jim's point there, the other uh, advantage of the mediation is you have that experienced mediator assisting the parties in understanding the perspectives. And that helps in a, in a discussion as opposed to two opponents arguing uh, their points. And the other uh, perspective is that um, the, if you reach an agreement, the agreement is only limited. The terms of which, as Jim alluded to, are only limited by the party's imagination. Things that might not be possible as a way to resolve a case within the confines of a 
of the legal parameters in a trial or arbitration, uh, ingenuity and uh, uh, imagination can can add to a result in a settlement in mediation. And, and that uh, is a key point because mediations result in a memorandum of understanding which is reduced to a settlement agreement completely resolves the case. Um, and I want to point out one last thing, which is that mediations can occur in trial court or on appeal. So if you won or lost in the trial court and someone appeals, you can go to a mediator at that point. The result of a mediation settlement, reached settlement, is then usually and often reduced to terms in what we mediators call a memorandum of understanding. Uh, understand. It's a written document. It's not as formal as a as a 25-page agreement, but it hits all the important points. So I want to uh, close this by saying that this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not legal advice. If you require legal advice, please contact us at 610-430-8000 or at www.lammackerlane.com. Thank you very much for your time today, ladies and gentlemen. We hope that what we've been able to give you is some insight into mediation that you might have not otherwise been aware of. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Lamb Mackerlane Legal Show, heard every other Thursday at 1230 on WCHE 1520, the talk of Chester County.